0: You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. The pastor's here at Mountain View Church, and I'm really glad that you're here this morning. It is our typical practice to walk verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, through books of the Bible here at Mountain View Church, and that's exactly what we're doing with the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to chapter 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes with me. If you do not have a Bible, you will find one underneath one of the seats in front of you, and I invite you to grab that and uh, turn with us so that you can follow along as we walk through this passage of Scripture this morning. And let's be honest, Ecclesiastes is not necessarily one of those books we typically turn to. So if you've got to use the table of contents, it's all good. You can do that this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 and working our way through chapter 7, verse 14. This is what uh, Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what's the advantage to man? For who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for angry lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not why were the former days better than these for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Father, we ask that you would bless the very simple reading and hearing of your word this morning. God grant us all understanding that we might be able to comprehend what you're saying to us here but beyond mere understanding grasp uh, help us father to be receptive to what you would say to us and beyond even being receptive Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would take this word and plant it in our hearts and transform us into the image of Christ, who is the word made flesh. In his name we pray. Amen. So the year was 2013, the month was November, and the movie was Frozen. Frozen. It gave us the lovable snowman, Olaf, and the song that every parent came to despise. Let it go. A song that includes these lyrics. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Free of what? Free of limitations. Free of the limitations that I place on myself and free of the limitations that others place on me. Free to make my own reality. Free to determine for myself what is good and what is bad. Or so we like to pretend. The only problem with That is no limits, no limits is an illusion. Try breathing underwater, limit. Try jumping out of an airplane without a parachute, limit. Try stepping out onto the four lane highway with your arm out and see if you can stop a tractor trailer, limit. Try wrestling a 2,000-pound bull to the ground in your own strength. Limit! Solomon would teach us that the wise person does not resist the limits of life. The wise person respects them and finds rest in the good and gracious Father who sets those limits. In other words, Solomon would teach us that the person of faith realizes that real freedom is found not in denying or defying the limits of God, but coming to rest in God and submitting ourselves to his good limits. To the God who defines reality, teaches us what is good, and holds all of our days in his wise, wonderful hands. Solomon would teach us that to attempt to redefine reality, to attempt to define good for ourselves, and to chart a course for ourselves through life, assuming that we can control our lives, is nothing less than foolishness. He would remind us in this text that Generally speaking, it is God who defines reality. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 6. Solomon says, whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Now here in these two verses, Solomon is taking us all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He's reminding us. That God created humanity and that God not only created humanity, God named humanity. Which means more than simply giving you and I names, it means that God has determined our identity as human beings and that God has determined our purpose as human beings. In other words, Solomon is telling us that our creator knows best who we are and how we are to function in the world that he's made. And no matter how much we would like to alter the fabric of reality, Solomon says here that we're going to have a really hard time going toe to toe with the maker to determine who gets final say regarding who you and I are supposed to be and how you and I are supposed to live. But the fact is, even though God is stronger than we are, that does not keep us from trying. In fact, Solomon would call all of our attempts to break free from the God designed limits of our nature as nothing less than disputes with God. That's what he says. He says, these are disputes with one who is stronger than we are. These disputes amount to our attempts to break free from the God-designed limits of our nature. From the God-designed limits regarding who we are and how we're to live. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a history slash philosophy lesson, okay? The Enlightenment period of the 1700s could basically be characterized as a time when intellectuals began to question the ability of divine revelation to interpret reality and to define morality. Those same intellectuals Rejecting divine revelation adopted instead human reason as the arbiter of reality and morality. But over the course of the last 300 years, even the greatest human thinkers have never been able to agree on fundamental issues which eventually caused people to question the very idea of objective truth, which means that certain things are always right, certain things are always wrong, certain things are always true, and certain things are always false. As a direct result of that, you and I are now living in an era that champions individual subjectivity. In other words, if divine revelation from above cannot determine what is right and wrong, true and false, and if we as human beings using our reason cannot agree on what is right and wrong, true and false, if no consensus can be reached, then you and I are left to look Only one place for those things. Me. And you. Within ourselves. Now follow me for just a minute. Because ideas have consequences. This is why authenticity is a supreme value of our time. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that those things must resonate with who I believe myself to be. The worst things that anyone can do in our current era are to conform to some external moral code rather than to conform to what I believe is right and wrong. And secondly, to impose my moral code upon you who are free to choose how you want to live and what reality looks like. Personal identity and meaning must come from where? Within. And the free, the free expression of who I determine myself to be must not be challenged. That's why, if authenticity is the supreme value, tolerance is the secondary value. Make sense? No one has the right to question how each individual chooses to define themselves. Sound familiar? Does it? These ideas permeate our culture and they did not just arise yesterday. We're talking about a hundreds years long process to get to where we are. Now, to anyone listening, at least one thing should be obvious. If we are free to define our own identity without being bound by the ideas of others, that will obviously include ideas about what it means to be a man and a woman. You follow? In other words... Freedom means not even your male biology and your female biology should restrict you in your pursuit of who you really think you are. Do you understand how we got here? This is ultimately what all sin is, is it not? The problem is such disputes never end well. For human beings, there is no advantage in them, according to Solomon. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 11. Rather than fighting against God, though, the person of faith, the follower of Jesus, submits to God's good design and to God's gracious limits. Believing, again, as we said earlier, that true freedom is not found outside of them, but within them. Now, what if all the limitations aren't something to fight, but something to gratefully accept? And I ask you that question because I don't, want you to simply assume that it's those people out there who have an issue with reality as God created it. What is your attitude toward your limitations? You do have them, by the way. Your body is limited. You can only be in one place at one time. You can only spin a certain number of plates before one crashes to the floor? You might say, yeah, Mike, I know that, but do you really? Do you pound energy drinks so that you can keep pushing and pushing in spite of the fact that your God-created, God-designed body is crying out for rest? How is defying and denying that limit any different from the man who wants to be a woman or a woman who wants to be a man. It's not. It's no different. It's just acceptable. Your gifts are limited. You can't do it all. And whatever your thing, there will always be somebody better at it than you. Your season of life and your current responsibilities limit you. Your education or lack thereof limits you. If you don't have a law degree, don't expect to walk into a courtroom and proceed to argue a case before a sitting judge. God's calling on your life limits you to a particular time, a particular place, in a particular mission. Your span of life will ultimately set boundary markers at the beginning and the end. In other words, your death date and your birth date limit you. What if all of these aren't something to argue with God about, but to receive, rejoice in, and simply offer back to Him in humble service? After all, Paul tells us this. In one of his letters when he says, it is through our weaknesses that God's strength is magnified. It is through our weaknesses that his true glory is revealed just like it was at the cross. In other words, your God does not need your attempts to be limitless. Your God can use your limits to bring glory to himself. And you know what? Sometimes you just need to lay down and rest, recognizing that your God is going to work even when you're worn out. God defines reality. And the person of faith joyfully lives within the limits as God has determined them. But Solomon tells us that God also defines what's good. Now, in verse 12, Solomon asks two questions that follow directly from verses 10 and 11 and from the fact that it is the God who defines all reality. So let's deal with each of the questions. In verse 12, Solomon writes, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Very simply, Solomon asks this, Who knows what's good for us during the days of our earthly life? Now this is a fundamental question and it's one that gets to the very heart of, of the matter in our own day. This whole notion of modern authenticity would say that I and only I can determine what's good for me. This is also a question that takes us right back to the beginning of the Bible. To the foot of a tree. This tree. Called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a choice will Adam and Eve our first parents the very first human beings will they choose to live with God and learn from God and will they allow God to define good and bad will they allow God to teach them to educate them and to mature them in wisdom or Will they take this knowledge for themselves? Will they determine to define what is good and bad for themselves? In the end, if you have any knowledge whatsoever about the third chapter of Genesis, you know that Adam and Eve decided to chart their own course and to determine for themselves what is good and what is bad. And we are no different from them. In fact, just like them, we are short-sighted. We are prone to grab at whatever satisfies us in the moment. We often fail to think through the consequences of our actions and we have a problem seeing the big picture. This is why Solomon offers up the series of punchy proverbs that he does in 7, 1 to 12. Now before we kind of mine the riches from those verses, I want to say two things. Number one, many of us are not at home in biblical passages like this. We like the simplicity of the do's and the don'ts. We like the plain instruction of Paul's letters. But wisdom literature is not like that. Words of wisdom must be wrestled with before they offer up their wealth. When you and I read them, they often sound like puzzles to be solved and that's because they are. They're designed to be chewed on, to be meditated upon. They're designed to compel us to to invest a little sweat before they will give up the truth that's in them. Number two, all of the Proverbs in 7, 1 to 12 have at least one thing in common. They're all intended to teach us that dealing with reality is better for us than trying to escape from it. And make no mistake, life is full of escape hatches for anyone who wants to get out when things get hard. Now we're not going to look at all of these proverbs, but I encourage you to go back and chew on them in your own time. I want you to look specifically in, first of all, at verses 2 and 4. Solomon writes, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. What is Solomon saying? Very simply, funerals are better than parties. How many of you agree with that? On the surface of things, that does not make sense. But here's the issue. What we often would think is best for us is often not what is best for us. So God would have us take our notions of good and offer them up to him. And God would say, what if going to a funeral is better than going to a party? Why? Why? Parties are often about escaping from life's troubles and complexities, right? But going to a funeral invites us to sit down to pull up a chair and to sit in front of the coffin and to imagine ourselves in it and to leave living better in light of our last day. That's why going to a funeral is better than going to a party because you're going to die. And you and I need to learn to live like it. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. What's Solomon saying there? Now he's not saying that sorrow in and of itself is better than laughter, but he is saying that there is a kind of joy that only those know who have walked through the fire and come out the other side. There is a kind of deep heart level joy and a smile on your face that only those who have walked through deep suffering and come out the other side know. For the most part, you and I would do everything in our power to avoid suffering. But Solomon is saying that suffering has the power to teach us things and to build character in us that we might never otherwise have experienced. Look at verses 5 to 7. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression, or you could translate it affliction, drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Those three verses simply say this. In the long run, truth will do you a lot more good than words that can make you feel good in the moment. The crackling of thorns and thistles under a pot as you, make the, as you, as you wait for the water to boil, they're not going to They might make a loud noise, but they're not going to heat that water to a boiling point because they burn up very quickly. In the same way, Solomon says the speech of fools is good for nothing. In fact, he says the songs of fools are good for nothing. Even so, in the midst of suffering, this is what he goes on to say, even the wise are prone to more easily accept the silly soothing songs of fools who would convince us to escape reality rather than actually dealing with reality. There are people who would invite you to go to the party and to drink yourself into a stupor in order to escape what's actually in front of you. And Solomon would say, you don't need friends like that. You need people who will actually help you deal with Reality Who will speak truth to you? Look at verse 10. "Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now many of us could use a hefty dose of this proverb. Ha! Oh. I just wish things were like the good old days. You do know there were no good old days except Genesis 1 and 2. You also realize that when you and I get nostalgic about the good old days, we tend to have selective memories. In other words, those days weren't as good as you remember them, and there was a lot of bad that you would rather forget. But that, even, that isn't even that isn't even the most serious thing about the nostalgia we often engage in. Believing things were better way back when automatically assumes that God was in control then, but God's not in control now. Right? To ask the question of verse 10 is to forget God. Finally, look at verses 11 and 12. Solomon had asked the question... Who knows what's good for man? In verse 11, what does he say? Wisdom is what? Good. Good with an inheritance. So the question and the answer are, who knows what's good? God does, and God says that wisdom is good. But he says that wisdom is good with an inheritance. Now, what does that mean? mean? At least two things. An inheritance often comes only after a period of time, meaning that wisdom often only bears fruit in your life after a period of time. But it also means that an inheritance comes typically only after what? Someone died. So wisdom is not typically hard won across time. Wisdom is typically hard won through suffering. Wisdom is typically hard won through pain. But God says that it's good. Why is it good? He tells us. He says that wisdom protects and preserves us. Look at verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Protection and preservation. How do wisdom, how does wisdom protect and preserve us? Well, if we've read the previous verses correctly, we have to conclude that it's because wisdom invites us or compels us to engage reality. Wisdom will not let us escape the truth. Wisdom would have us reckon with the fact that we're going to die. Wisdom would have us reckon with the fact that the fruit of suffering has often lessons learned that could never have been learned any other way. So wisdom would have us reckon with our hurts and our heartaches rather than distracting ourselves or trying to numb ourselves from the pain. In the end, wisdom would point us to reality and by God's grace, wisdom would point us all the way to Christ, to the one who can restore what sin has wrecked. Wisdom would point us to Christ alone who has faced death and defeated it. One of the problems at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes is the problem of death. And the New Testament's answer to the problem is Jesus who defeats death and hell and Satan and our sin. It is Christ alone who promises lasting glory and lasting joy on the other side of suffering. It is Christ alone who would tell us the unvarnished truth about our spiritual condition that our hearts might be genuinely awakened to our need for Him. And Christ would remind His people That it is not in looking back to the good old days that we have hope, but in looking forward to our heavenly reward and to an eternity spent with Christ that gives us the ability to persevere. There may not be any good old days in the past, but for those who know Jesus, there's an eternity worth of good old days coming. Finally, in this text, we see that God defines our days, the prosperous ones and the painful ones. Look in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Solomon says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now this is essentially the second question that Solomon asks and answers in this passage. And I would summarize it like this. Can anyone change what God has sovereignly decreed? And the answer to that question is no. No one can change what God has sovereignly decreed. Decreed. And it's interesting. In verse 13, Solomon asks, who can make straight what God has made crooked? And that's an allusion all the way back to chapter 1, verse 15, where Solomon told us that God has imposed a curse on human beings and upon creation because of our sin. And as we said when we dealt with that verse, there is no way out of this. There is no way to overcome it in our own strength. It is simply part of the reality of life. The reality of the world into which we were born and with which we must live. Now escapists would try to pretend that this is not so. But over and over again, Solomon would have you and I to traffic in Reality. That's the gift of this book. The person of faith who responds rightly to these words learns to walk out the doors of the church and back into this world of mist and mystery. And he goes forth believing that his father is in control on the good days, And his father is in control on the bad days. And he's fully confident that no matter what kind of day he faces, his father will bring about ultimate good for him. How does he face the prosperous days? Well, Solomon tells us. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, what? Be joyful. On those days... When things go really, really good for you. On those days when every piece of the puzzle falls in place. On those days when every financial deal falls on the right side of the ledger. On those days when you make money rather than losing money. On those days when you get out of bed feeling good, on those days when your children actually obey you, on those days, rejoice. (laughs) Rejoice. God invites you to give thanks for the good days. And you and I should because Solomon says that God's the one who sends them. But now here's the part we don't like. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Own the hard days. Solomon says, consider. Now what does that mean? The Hebrew word used there simply means to seek. So the idea is that on the hard days, the person of faith evaluates and discerns and tries to come to the proper conclusion. In other words, the follower of Jesus, recognizing that every day, the prosperous days and the painful days are in the hands of his father, he asks on the painful days, God, what would you have me learn today? God, what do you want to teach me about you in the midst of this pain? God, what do you want to teach me about me in the midst of this pain? What kind of sin are you trying to squeeze out of my heart through this particular painful circumstance? How do you want me to grow in faith? How do you want me to grow in hope? How do you want me to grow in love? In other words, the person of faith does not run from painful days or try to argue with God about painful days or try to manipulate his way out of painful days. The person of faith submits to the limit of painful days. Now, did I say this was going to be easy? No, it's not. But there is a brand of Christianity out there that deserves the title, foolishness. The basic idea is that your behavior, your faith, your prayers, and your seed planting can ensure from God long life, prosperity, and whatever else you want. This brand of so-called Christianity assumes that it can control how God releases his blessing into the world. But Solomon would say foolishness. God cannot be manipulated. God's arm cannot be twisted. I don't care how much the evangelist on the television tells you to send in to him. This is not wisdom. True wisdom recognizes that God's sovereignty over our days is thorough and complete and total. It encompasses the prosperous days and the painful days. And when you stop and think about it, this is actually a great comfort to the follower of Christ. What's the alternative, by the way? What's the alternative if God sends the good days, but God can't do anything about the painful days? What's the alternative? You and I are just left up to blind chance. We're left up to the randomness of the universe. The pain just comes out of nowhere, and it comes with no purpose. I would rather live in a world where my Father sifts all of those things through His gracious hands, and He sends them into my life for his eternal purposes, rather than a world where God cannot control it. The well-known British pastor Charles Spurgeon said, there is no attribute more comforting to God's children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials... They believe that God has sovereignly ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that ultimately sovereignty will sanctify all of them. Man, it's good. In other words, the wise disciple of Jesus knows that God the Father wastes nothing. He wastes neither prosperity nor pain very simple question then is this. Will you and I trust the Father's heart even on the days when we find it difficult to trace His hand? Will we trust the Father's heart even on the days when we find it difficult to trace His hand? Friends, that's a rubber meets the road kind of question. And it's one that we must answer if we're going to live by In some ways, it's just another way of coming at the idea of limits. Will we trust that God knows what he's doing even when we don't? Solomon makes it very, very clear elsewhere and here That the world in which we live and so many of the things that happen to us in the end will be mysterious to us, though they are not mysterious to God. So will we trust Him? Will we trust Him on the prosperous days and the painful days? Thankfully, God has not left us without reminders that He is always in control and that He's always working for our good. When you and I come to the Lord's table, we are reminded through the bread and the cup that the seemingly darkest moment of history was where God was accomplishing the greatest good for humanity. At the cross, Jesus looked like he was losing but he was actually winning our salvation. Every time you and I receive the bread and the cup, we are reminded that the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ resulted in his victory and ours if we are in him. On his worst day, on his worst day, He was accomplishing the very best thing for you and for me. Every time we receive the bread and the cup, we are reminded as a consequence that on our most painful days, the greatest good, our salvation is never in jeopardy. Ever. In fact, God is often up to so much more than our eyes can see And all of it on the prosperous days and the painful days for our good. So here's what I invite you to do this morning. You'll find a little cup with a little wafer on top of it underneath the seat in front of you or on the seats if you're on the front row. And I invite you to take that up and don't open it yet because I want us to take a moment to reflect on what God's taught us today. If today you have come into this room and you are in the midst of a joyous season, I want to invite you to eat and to drink with a smile on your face. I want to invite you to eat and to drink with great thanksgiving. Because the death and the resurrection of Christ has purchased for you an eternal salvation that no one can strip from you. If you came into this room this morning and you've had a particularly painful week or today seems like a particularly painful day and you're just not looking forward to walking out of those doors and facing what's on the other side of them today or tomorrow or later this week, I want to invite you. In the midst of your pain, to eat and to receive. Recognize that Jesus, through these things, meets you right where you are. And through the pain, he will nourish you. He will guide you. He will direct you. He will feed you. And he'll bring you all the way home to his banqueting table. Where there never will again be a painful day, because this meal doesn't. put it before his disciples and he said this represents my body broken for you take and eat from it all of you and so we do that now remembering that christ's body was broken on our behalf that you and i might be made whole through him we also receive the cup recognizing that during that last passover meal Jesus took a cup of wine and he said it before his disciples. And he said to all of them seated around the table, this is my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. The blood of the new covenant. This juice represents God's promise to you that your sins are forever washed away, that they'll never be counted against you, and that you are free from the guilt and the shame of them forever through the shed blood of Jesus. So if you're a follower of Christ,